Hey. How's it going, everybody? Good. It's good to see you. Um, we are very excited to be down here. If you haven't gotten a chance to meet us, just a uh, little more of a brief introduction. She said you can trust my character while she was introducing me. Every joke that came to my mind was heretical. So I thought, okay, I probably shouldn't say that. I'll say one. Uh, before Genesis was, we were. So that's, that's the heresy that I felt like was pretty important there. Uh, yeah, we were so excited to be able to send uh, Chris and Merrill and a team into Costa Mesa to see Genesis Church get started. Uh, it's very strange to say that about your mentors because they have been leading Kristen and I for the last 10 years as a, uh, a couple pouring into our life. And it was actually kind of down the road from that that they felt the call to plant Genesis Church. And so we've been so excited to be a part of that journey. And uh, we are thrilled to be here this evening. Uh, it's been a beautiful day. Kristen just leaned over to me as we were starting the day and she said, I, I preached at uh, Anthem Church in Camarillo today, uh, one of our church plants in Camarillo. And they started off uh, the, the gathering with a woman sharing a word about delight and with the song Firm Foundation. And then Terry shared a word about delight and you led with Firm Foundation. And there was just something there about just the the like, way God weaves things together is pretty cool. And uh, we're very just grateful to be here and be able to be pouring in tonight. Uh, I love God's word. I love how it was written. It's written by human people that uh, sat down with uh, pen and paper, aka quill and papyrus, or whatever they had at their disposal, and, uh, and they wrote. But it's way more than that. The scriptures tell us that actually the, the Holy Spirit inhabits those writings, that all scripture is God-breathed, that it's the word of God. We call it that very casually. This is the word of God, but it is uh, the very breath of God. It's his instruction to us. It's his gift to us. It's his way of helping us navigate through a difficult world and landing at him, with him, by him. And so he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so the, the fun thing about tonight, I'm preaching on Philippians chapter three, and I love getting a chance to jump into this. And as I was reading the section that I'm going to be talking about, verses 12 through 21, I realized that there's a, a way shorter version of this, and we're going to start there and then go back to Philippians chapter three. So if you want to flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to look at verses one and two. This is going to be our starting point, and then we're going to go back and see Philippians chapter three. So this is uh, another reason that I love the scriptures. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, there are lots of people that like to throw out lots of guesses, and they are exactly that. They are guesses. Some people say Paul. Some people say Priscilla. Some people say all kinds of things. It was a committee. Uh, people can say whatever they want. We don't know the author of Hebrews, and I think that's God's gift to us, to not be too caught up in the human author, but to enjoy the fact that the Spirit breathes life into these words. And the author says this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So one of the questions that we'll start with, and then we'll go to Philippians chapter three, uh, is what is your running, what are you running towards right now? What are you running towards right now? Like if you were to describe your life as a run, what's your destination? What are you aiming at? What's driving you to run? 
What are you running towards? So keep that in your heads. And now let's go to Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. This we do know who wrote. It's Paul. It's a very personal letter. And even here, it's a very conversational. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join me in imitating, uh, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Jesus, would you guide us through these beautiful words? Help us to draw deeply from them. Would you shape our lives actively, Lord? Would we be uh, chiseled and molded tonight by your scriptures? Uh, Take away anything in us that is preventing us from running purely and passionately towards you. It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, last week, Terry taught and did a wonderful job teaching about this idea of the resurrection. And uh, Paul talks about this in last week's passage. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And this week, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. So Paul wants to make it abundantly clear. Look, I am not all the way finished as a disciple of Jesus. There's a lot of stuff up here to deal with. I'll try and make my way stealthily through things. Paul's heart is to run towards Jesus, and he talks about this resurrection, this future destination. And this is something that's really helpful. For the last probably 100 years or so, there's been language in the church that's been really helpful, and it's the already not yet of the kingdom of God. You may have heard somebody talk about that before, the already slash not yet of the kingdom of God. So there are things that are already true in our salvation and in the kingdom of God, and there are things that are not yet true in our salvation and in the kingdom of God. You might read through a lot of words in the New Testament, and they're written in the past tense, like we are saved, redeemed, we're made holy, we're rescued, we're transferred, we're transformed. These words are very much like they sound completed, and in some senses, they are completed, So there's an already to all of those words, and there's also a not yet. There's a to be made full when Jesus comes again, and there's this beautiful moment of resurrection. There's a completion to the story that we're still waiting for. And so I can say both things. I am saved, and I'm being saved. So I can confidently walk in my salvation, but I can also know that there's a salvation that I get to fully realize, a not yet to my salvation. 
I am redeemed, but also there's the realization of that redemption that I'm waiting for. It's the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And so Paul talks about this and he says, look, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it, you know what the it is? It's from last week. It's a big word, resurrection. All right. I may, to make it my own. Paul wants to make the resurrection his own. I want that to be a personal story. I am running for this goal of the end game of Jesus's kingdom. That's what I'm after. And I'm not going to stop. I press on. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, a couple of things about this. How you run matters. Paul uses the language multiple times. I press on, I press on, I press on. Hebrews says, let us run with perseverance or endurance the race marked out for us. The picture is this long-running journey of getting to where God is taking us. It's not quick. It's not instantaneous. And sometimes we can find ourselves frustrated by how not quick or not instantaneous it is. We want change to happen. Okay, I'm a husband. I've been married for 22 years. There are times where we will get into a fight about something that I've done wrong, and I apologize. And it's very easy for me, the moment I've said I'm sorry, to be like, it's fixed. We can move on. I'm good to go. All that I forget what lies behind and I press on. And there's this sense of like, done, finished, I'm good to go. Wow, I lost my train of thought with that. Do you have any idea where I was going? No, no idea. Yes, how we run matters. Okay, thank you, Dana and Kristen. Um, And so there's this picture of, of running towards Jesus with a sense of endurance, of long running. Okay, this summer, I got a chance to go backpacking with my 12-year-old daughter, Lily. We have five kids, by the way, and uh, our oldest is 20, lives in Colorado, and our youngest is six, going into first grade, and we have a smattering of kids in between. And uh, Lily, our 12-year-old, is following in her brother's footsteps. At 12 years old, I took each of them backpacking in Yosemite, uh, and Lily turned 12 this year and wanted to take her backpacking in Yosemite. So we did a uh, three-day backpacking trip. Lily did 22 miles with 35 pounds on her back as a 12-year-old girl. She crushed it. She absolutely crushed it. And we did, I mean, we did some elevation game. We did the Mist Trail. Anybody ever hiked up the Mist Trail before, getting soaked by Nevada Falls and Vernal Falls? All right. There were like three of you. You guys need to get out there and, you know, what did REI tell you? Opt outside? Like, go. Come on. Just go climb something. Uh, So you go on this trail, and it is exhausting. The mist trail is straight vertical. You're going up stairs that are this tall and you've got this giant pack on your back and the, and the poles and Lily's behind me and she's just charging her way through it. And we get, we get through this and I'm looking at my daughter and just thinking, who are you? I think I, I honestly, like, I didn't know what to expect. She, honestly, where she's at at 12, and this happens with, you know, girls and boys, they grow at different ages. Our boys were puny at 12, and she's, like, strong and built, and she's got, you know, legs and all of that. She's just, she's powerful. And, and so I think I knew, but also I, I hadn't really seen the resilient side of her come out like I saw in this backpacking trip. It was unbelievably beautiful to watch her just charge. And um, 
we go on this backpacking trip. We go up and we camp in the backcountry and we hike around and we camp in the backcountry and then we make our way out. And the kind of reward for this whole thing is getting pancakes in the valley and, and they've got a nice place where you can go get pancakes. Uh, and we were on our way out and I mean, we had, done, we had done 21 miles. So we have one mile left till we get to the car and we can take our packs off and put them in the car and go get pancakes. So we've done 21 miles and she's walking and she says, dad, my feet kind of hurt. I'm like, my feet have been hurting for 12 miles. She says, Dad, my feet kind of hurt. And I'm like, oh, babe, you've done so good. We're so close. And I kind of like, you know, take some stuff out of her pack or just hold some things, but just trying to, trying to help her get there. But there's this sense in her of determination to finish. And I'm not sure what her motivation was. I'm not sure if it was to impress me, if it was to keep track with her brothers. She actually outpaced her brothers, and uh, one of them, she went longer than one of her brothers, and she definitely carries that as a badge of honor. Um, but there is this drive in her to complete and finish and run, and it came from somewhere deep. And ultimately, what Paul is getting at with this and what the author of Hebrews is saying is our run It's not dictated by anybody else. What you are doing in your life to pursue Jesus, it's not to please somebody else. It's not to win somebody else's approval or affection. It's not to prove yourself to this community that you can do it. Ultimately, the purpose for running comes from somewhere deep inside of us that longs to be like Jesus. So Paul writes about his own life. And this is why I share this about the human authors and the beauty of scripture. It's Paul sharing his own life, his own journey. It's Holy Spirit inspired, but it is Paul's life and journey. And he's telling us this. He's saying, look, not that I've already obtained it, but here's what I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Part of Paul's journey, if he's going to make it through this difficult life, running to become like Jesus, he looks at it and says, I actually have to be disciplined to shed the things of my past, the things that would bog me down, the things that that I used to be, and I need to choose to run towards Jesus and let him define my future. I need to have him shaping who I am becoming, not these things that were, and Paul's talked about who he was. That becomes a pretty critical part of our story. How we run, how we take on this task of becoming more like Jesus. And the author of Hebrews said it this way, let us cast off the sin and the things that so easily entangle. I love that that author makes a point that it's two things. It's not just getting rid of the sin in your life and you can run with perseverance. There's a lot of stuff that's not sin that bogs us down that keeps us from running a focused run on the way of Jesus, on becoming like him. So Paul's challenging us to think differently about these things. So there's this, uh, this sense in us of how do we move forward? We start with this forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is where ultimately Paul gets his motivation. So what's his prize for running? His prize for running is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus to become like Christ. 
He's already told us this from Terry's passage last week, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The verse before that, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's looking at it and saying, if Jesus is prototype human, if he's God in the flesh, if he's the picture of perfect obedience to the law, if he is who we are to become, then I'm going to become like him in every way possible. And what that means is not looking at the things of my past that were not like Jesus, but I'm going to focus on who Jesus is and I'm going to run at him. The author of Hebrews says the same thing. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We run at him. We run at him. Francis Chan, uh, years ago, this was like way long ago, back when he lived in Simi Valley, he used to talk about this uh, a time that he went mountain biking. And he said, you know, I was mountain biking and I was on this trail. It was all downhill. I was on this trail and my whole goal was to not crash. And I just was going and my friends were all up ahead and I just seemed to hit every possible rock on the trail and go over the handlebars. And I, I couldn't stop running into these obstacles. And finally, my friend's like, Francis, what are you doing? And he's like, I, I just, I see the thing that I'm not supposed to hit. And I'm like, don't hit it, don't hit it, don't hit it. And I hit it. And his friend said, well, that's, that's the problem. You go where your eyes are fixed. Like if you're looking at the thing that you don't want to run into, you're going to run into it. The trick is to look where you want to go. Look at the area that you most want to be and your wheels will follow. When you think about this idea of looking at Jesus, the author and perfecter, or fixing our eyes on Jesus, or pressing toward the goal for the prize that is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, we start to get a picture of how we're supposed to run. We run at Jesus and become like him. Now, that can be hard to do. Most of us don't have Jesus sitting in the shotgun seat of our car when we're driving. Most of us don't have Jesus as a coworker, Jesus as uh, a fellow student. We don't have Jesus that's so clear and so obvious in our lives that everything he does, we just do that very same thing, that very same moment, and we imitate Jesus just like that. And so Paul starts to help the Philippians shape, okay, so let's say you want this. You want to strain forward and run at Jesus. What does that look like? And he starts to talk about what imitation looks like. He says, let those of us who who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So he's looking at this and saying, look, there's a, a common understanding of how we're going to think when we're mature in Christ. But the reality is God's going to speak to you. He's going to direct you, but do not stray from the gospel. So here we go. Step one, do not stray for the gospel. Step two, brothers and sisters, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Do you ever look at Paul and think, dang, this guy's confident. He's just shared, I have not obtained it. I am not perfect. And at the same time, in the same passage, he's saying, okay, all y'all just need to look at me and walk like I walk. I'm not perfect, walk like I walk. He can say that in the exact same passage. Paul is committed in his understanding of walking by the Spirit, of what it's going to look like for him to press on. He knows that he's walking in maturity and he's confident in that. I'll just kind of pause for a moment and say, are you, are you confident in your walk with the Lord? 
I'm not saying that to get you to be not confident in your walk with the Lord. But I think most of us, if we were to sit down and like a, you know, over a quiet coffee with Terry and Linda Fouché and they were to, to ask us, tell me about your walk with the Lord, you would, you know, kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. Most of us can be pretty honest about our walk with the Lord and our honesty actually reveals a lack of confidence. I'm not doing great in my walk with the Lord. One of the things that we can do by the Spirit is we can walk in obedience to Jesus and even be confident in that, and it's not wrong. It's not wrong for Paul to say, imitate me. Okay, I've got, I've got kids, five of them, and I want them to be able to imitate me. I want them to be able to look at my life for Krishna. I want them to be able to look at her life. Part of our job as parents, even if we're not perfect, is walking ahead of our kids. There were multiple times where I let Lily lead just uh, in our backpacking trip because I wanted her to just kind of have that freedom and adventure of seeing like the, the valleys of Yosemite and just the big world without dad's stupid back in front of her. And so I'd just go. But that definitely slowed our pace down a lot just because she didn't know how to maintain a pace or how to like walk at a, at a good rate or that type of thing. She was just enjoying and meandering through the forests of Yosemite and it was beautiful. But there were times when we needed to finish off a hike because it was going to get dark or we needed to get to our next break. And, and so I needed to, to take the lead and set the pace and, and show her what that was going to look like. And there's this sense of like, look, guys, I've only been backpacking four times, Andrew, Jeremy, Tyler, and then Lily. Like I've only done this with my kids. I am not an expert backpacker, but there was a sense of, oh, well, I know more than she does. So I can set this pace and I can invite her to follow me. Part of what Paul's bringing to the table is the humility of knowing I've not obtained it and the confidence of knowing, but you can look at me because I know I'm running at Jesus. And that's his confidence. I know I'm running at Jesus. You can look at my life in all its imperfections and you can see those imperfections, but you can know I'm running at Jesus and I want you to imitate me in that. And then he tells him this, there are others that are doing a good job of already imitating the example that I've set. Look at them also. And so here's the, the question that I have for you. As you're shaping, and I, I feel like there's a pretty good average age in here. You guys are mostly young. I'm starting to see some older faces in here. I'm, some of you are growing up. That's good. But for the most part, <laughs> growing up, Dana, it's you. You're growing up. Yes. Most of us are, are looking up. See, I included myself in with you guys in that. that was, I'm 44, Dana. I just feel like, yeah, like, like us. I just feel just like us, guys. Most of us are looking ahead and, and looking for people that we can shape our lives after. We're looking for somebody that we can trust. It's exceptionally difficult right now. It feels like Christian leaders are proving to be untrustworthy. It's a difficult thing to be in. I have a friend, Andy Rogers, leads Restored Church in San Diego, and he talks about this. He says, follow somebody whose character you can test. So if you're following a podcast, stop following a podcast. If you're following an author, stop following an author. If you're following an Instagram account, stop following an Instagram account. Look to people whose character you can personally test to be the people that you can shape your life after. And that's what Paul's getting at here. There's this closed loop ecosystem, Philippi, Paul as an apostolic authority, bringing this sense of like, look, this is what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Look at those people, imitate them, and start walking like Jesus. So he gives them first, cling to the gospel, 
attest to all things by the gospel and cling to the examples that have been set before you. Again, Hebrews 12, look at this great cloud of witnesses that we have. There are people that are fighting the good fight, that are walking by the faith, and you can look to them as a picture of endurance. So he says, cling to the gospel and find people that are walking like Jesus and imitate them. That's the how to run. That's the simple way of how to run. It's part of why you would be a part of a table community where you would come together, you would be in other people's lives, you can hear their voices, test their character, see how they interact with the scriptures and say, okay, I wanna, I wanna grow, so I'm going to imitate you. I'm going to live in this way like you are living in this way. I want to run after Jesus like you're running after Jesus. I do recommend that you find somebody older than you. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, everybody needs a Paul, everybody needs a Timothy, but you have this sort of like, we all have somebody that's, that's ahead of us that we can imitate. We all have somebody that's, that we're raising up that can imitate us. And we're just in this life of both being molded and also being a molder of other people. And we can do that, but there's this sense of have somebody older in your life who runs after Jesus And you can ask them questions like, okay, I've got this issue going on at work and I want to honor Jesus with it. What does that look like? And they can give you their thoughts and their opinions and they can help shape things. All right, now just like the author of Hebrews gave a warning about sin and the things that so easily entangle, Paul gives a warning as well. So he says this in verse 19, Uh, 18, 18. He says, for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And this is a really interesting moment where Paul's saying, look, there are some people that have gotten caught up in the things of the world. We see multiple times throughout the New Testament where people run after the things of the world and it takes them off of their pursuit of Jesus. Paul talks in another place about somebody shipwrecking their faith and it's the idea of, again, this this faith that's just derailed completely. And Paul identifies three things that I think are just fascinating that he calls these three things out. He says their end is destruction. He says their God is their belly they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And you should know that Paul writes with some pretty good intentionality here. So this is the end of a parenthesis. He started the parenthesis back in verse two and three of chapter three. So this is back to Terry's section. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. He should have said, look out for the cats. But he said, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he says this, verse three. He says, for we are the circumcision. Now, in his language, he's talking about that as the the set-apart one. So Israel was set apart through circumcision. And then as Christians, and he's already told multiple churches that it's not about circumcision of the flesh, it's about circumcision of the heart. We're talking about being set apart or consecrated for the work of God. We are the circumcision. So he's telling the Philippians this. He says about us as set-apart people. We worship by the Spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. So those of us that are running to Jesus, worship by the Spirit of God. Those that are running away from Jesus, their God or their worship is their belly. Okay, so that has to do with desire. 
Your God is your belly. If you just think about like hunger specifically, hunger, the, the natural fleshly desires that well up. So like physical, I'm getting, literally, I'm actually hungry right now, you guys. Like hunger that you feel becomes a God, but not just for food. The burning desire of the flesh is what Paul's talking about when he says their God is their belly. And when we start to worship the things that we desire, we're off the rails. We're no longer running after Jesus. And it happens so quickly and so easily when the things that, that our flesh desires, that could be, and there's so, I mean, the big categories are sex, money, power, right? Those are the, the three big categories that people will almost universally point to of the desires of the flesh, but they're written all throughout. Galatians 5 names a bunch of them. But there's things in us that want not God. And to, to chase after those things or to worship those things is when our desires become the defining force of our life. Their God is their belly. But we, the circumcision, we worship by the Spirit of God. There's something unique about us that when the Spirit enters into us, we see Yahweh and we worship Him alone. Okay, the second thing that Paul says is we glory in Christ Jesus. For those whose end is destruction, their glory is, uh, they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Now, to glory simply means to boast. And what Paul's identifying here, oh, thank you so much. Uh, what Paul's identifying here is that they, they literally boast in shameful things. They've started to make an identity out of the things that are contrary to the way of God. Now, I don't need to go into too much detail to, for you to think about what that would look like for somebody to boast in things that are not the way of God. It's pretty obvious in our world, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of ways that people boast or brag or put on display the things in their life that are not consistent with the way of Jesus. And that's a marker of somebody whose end is destruction. Paul's looking at this and saying, this is not the way of the circumcision. This is not the way of the set apart ones. This is the way of those that are aiming towards destruction, running at a different goal. The third thing that Paul says up in verse three is he says, they put no confidence in the flesh. So the circumcision put no confidence in the flesh. And down in verse 19, they have their minds set on earthly things. So for us as followers of Jesus, who are set apart ones, who are running after the way of Jesus, we actually, we choose not to put confidence in the flesh. Honestly, if my flesh wants it, I should probably ask my friends, or I should probably ask that old person that I just talked about a little bit ago and say, hey, I have this desire, or my, my, my mind is set on something that I want, and the reality is I don't know if that desire is from the Lord. I need help discerning this. Would you help me discern, discern that? So when our flesh desires something, as believers, we actually know not to trust it. Paul tells the Galatians that the flesh desires the opposite of the spirit, and the spirit desires what is opposite of the flesh. So the things that our bodies naturally crave are oftentimes contrary to the way of Jesus. And we're in this new way of living where we're actually finding life in the spirit and reforming our desires to pursue Jesus. And so we don't put confidence in the flesh and we put our confidence in the spirit instead. We 
set, and we don't set our mind on earthly things, but as Paul tells the Colossians in chapter three, we set our minds on things above. Then he closes out by saying this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Hey, the idea of our citizenship being in heaven, and I, I'm gonna wrap up here in about four minutes, so just bear with me. Thank you. Our citizenship being in heaven is one of the most critical things that we can grab a hold of and live with as an identity marker going through this life. And what that means is that you are here, but you belong elsewhere. Anybody here a citizen of another country? Yeah, 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 all right, cool. Are you dual citizens though? You also belong here? Okay, yeah, so you don't count anymore. Sorry, never mind. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Being a citizen of a, of a foreign land basically means I'm here, but this is not my home. I'm here, but this place is different than me. I'm here, but it's temporary. Those are the kinds of things that being a citizen of another place and landing here would indicate. And Paul's telling the Philippians, he says, look, our citizenship is in heaven. And he's, again, living in that not yet. I started with the already, and Paul's living in the not yet. We're running after the resurrection. That's a not yet. We have this goal. We're after it and we're running with hunger and vigor and passion towards this becoming fully like Jesus. The not yet is the full realization of our heavenly citizenship, but the, the now is not, okay, so we embrace our citizenship here on earth. It's actually we live as though that has already happened. We live as though our citizenship for eternity has already been established and we're here on assignment. We're here for a different purpose. Uh, before we planted Anthem Church, Kristen and I were sitting down for breakfast. We had a couple of kids running around, and uh, I don't remember the moment other than breakfast by our back window, and we were getting ready to move to Chicago to prepare to plant a church. And she said, do you ever wonder why uh, when people get saved, they don't just get sucked up into heaven immediately? I mean, it'd be a pretty good evangelistic tool if somebody were pretty over life and they're like, well, that guy said yes to Jesus and he was gone, so uh, I'm in. Sounds awesome. And also, a lot of us go through very, very difficult things in life. Life can get challenging, can be frustrating. And there's this sense of like, well, why doesn't heaven just start immediately? Why doesn't eternity just start immediately? And the biblical reason, the reason that's scattered through almost every page of the Bible is you are here because you are sent by God to this place. You're here on purpose to fulfill his commission, to be messengers and ministers of reconciliation, restoring relationship with creation and creator. That's your job. That's why you're still here. So understanding that our citizenship is in heaven means I know where I will be for eternity, but I'm here on assignment that changes the way that you live. A couple of things that change. Number one, we could get called home at any moment. We could get called home at any moment. Uh, I had a strange opportunity. I told you I was gonna be done in four minutes. It's still gonna be like four more minutes if, you could, if that's okay. Just, yeah, okay. I had an opportunity three years ago uh, to sit with three different men 
that all died. I believe it was all prostate cancer, but I can't remember. But uh, three different men in our church in one summer that died, and I got to sit with each one of them. As they were dying, we spent time together, we prayed together, we read Narnia together, read the last two chapters of The Last Battle, and you will weep forever. It's unbelievable. But one of the guys, uh, just an incredible man named John Achenbach, he said this. He said, uh, I believe God for healing. Uh, I think God might have another assignment for me. But he said, that's the great thing about this is I know, I know that if I die, all it means is that my assignment is complete. This is a man that was actively dying of cancer that had this beautiful perspective. I'm ready for more, for me to live as Christ. But if I go home, I just, I know my assignment is complete. So that's the first thing about your citizenship being in heaven is you could get called home at any moment. Number two, you could get reassigned at any moment. If your citizenship is heaven, that means you're not locked down to where you are. God may say, hey, I have a different story that I want to write with you. I've got a place to send you. We're here as ambassadors, as emissaries of heaven. And he may give us a different job at a different time. And we might live that out in a different way. But we open our hands up to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm, I'm good where I'm at. I'm ready to go. You take me where you have me. We open ourselves up to what God might have for us if our citizenship is in heaven. And this is, by the way, all part of how we run. Paul's just kind of bringing it home. He's bringing it home. Our citizenship is in heaven. And if we're going to run after Jesus, the other thing that that means is that our culture is defined by heaven and we bring that to earth. Who we are, our identity, the things that pattern us, that's, our, that's where our citizenship is. These are the things that are shaping us and we bring that, we import that into this place. So what you bring is the presence of God, the kingdom of God, the character of God. We can't lose sight of that one. The, the joy of the Lord, the power of God. We bring these things from heaven to earth and that's our job here. Paul calls on the Philippian church to understand their role with, as having our citizenship in heaven. And from this place, we await Jesus. We will be transformed. Our resurrection is coming. But in the meantime, we are here on assignment. So it closes, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And this is where we'll wrap up. If I could have the communion table uh, crew for the night, come on up. If you're on duty with communion, that's you. Yeah, cool. Um, Dana, how often do you guys take communion? Is this every week? Okay, good. Yeah. I, lo I love the every week communion. Any of you guys grew up in a church that did once a month? I grew up in a church that did once a month, yeah. Uh, I don't believe there's a biblical right or wrong. Once a month, once a week. Either way is totally fine. I love once a week. Here's why. This experience is a tangible gift that Jesus gave to us. There were some times where the spiritual became physical, where he actually took something that was a very spiritual concept and he, he gave us something physical to remember it by and that's, that's what baptism is. He took this idea of us uh, dying with Jesus and being buried with him and then being raised to walk in the newness of life and he gave us a physical experience 
to testify to that. He let us go into the water and be raised up out of the water so that we and everybody that's witnessing it could have this symbol, this tangible symbol of what's gone on in the spiritual world. And communion is the same thing. Jesus took bread on the night that he was betrayed and he said, this is my body given up for you. And it's so funny to think about that. Jesus in the body was there with the disciples and he he held up the bread. He said, this, this is my body. And he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he told them to eat it. What we've been given is the gift of an experience, a tangible experience to remind us that the body of Christ was given up for us. That he went to the cross for each and every one of us. And when we take part in communion, we're testifying that we are part of that body of Christ. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which maybe that language is foreign to you, but he said, this is the new relationship that you have with God that is formed by my blood, which represents the forgiveness of sins. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And the disciples drank from the cup. Again, a physical, tangible way to experience the forgiveness of sins. And so when we approach the table, each and every one of us are being reminded of this gospel truth. Paul tells us to stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You are on a journey through life. It is a run It's endurance, it's hiking, it's going up the mist trail. You're on a journey that goes all the way to the resurrection of the dead. And you've been invited along the way to reestablish your identity in Christ on a regular basis through the practice of communion. Stand firm in the Lord. This is who you are. So when you take communion, it's identity, it's forgiveness, it's the body of Christ. It's a tangible reminder of what's taken place in a spiritual way over your life. I will ask if you're not a follower of Jesus to not participate in communion. Uh, It doesn't hold the same power. It's just a snack at that point. Uh, But if you are a follower of Jesus, it is the embodiment of what Jesus has done for us. And we invite all who are believers to partake as we worship, as we respond. We're gonna gradually come forward and take part in communion. So we stand? Okay, why don't we stand together? We'll take communion and we'll respond.